Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we'll be talking about the new Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods, as well as looking at Spike Lee's career. Uh, This is an exciting podcast. Obviously, before we get going, yes, this is two white guys talking about the work of one of the most prolific black and important black filmmakers of all time. We are aware... Um, we are currently working on diversifying our staff at Collider, um, but we didn't want to to go too long without talking about The Five Bloods because it's now on Netflix. It's a really interesting and important film, and we wanted to dive into that, especially uh, and take advantage of the opportunity to talk about Spike Lee, who I also think is one of the more interesting filmmakers uh, of the past few decades, uh, especially with, I think, something we want to explore in this episode is how the culture is finally catching up with Spike Lee. Uh, Spike Lee has sort of been, uh, his, his, his films have been exploring topics that now seem timely, even though they were timely and then they were released, but the mainstream, I don't think, I don't want to say wasn't ready for them, but they weren't exactly embracing them in the way that they would have been embraced today. Uh, case in point, a film like Do the Right Thing probably would have won Best Picture and not lost to Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love that Spike Lee is still salty about that, as he should be. Yes, as he should be. Driving Miss Daisy is, God, I can't believe that movie won Best Picture. Yeah. So, uh, but before, so we're going to talk about The Five Bloods first. It will be a spoiler free discussion. So if you haven't seen The Five Bloods yet, that's okay. It's on Netflix. Uh, I encourage you to set aside some time to watch it. Um, but for those who aren't aware of the film, it's kind of a mashup of a lot of different influences, but the basic plot is that these four Vietnam veterans who are all black are going back to Vietnam to, uh, get the remains of their commanding officer, um, who's played by Chadwick Boseman, who, uh, character died in combat. And, but also they buried gold that was intended for the Vietnamese and they want to take it for themselves. So they're also going to reclaim the gold uh, that they buried. And now because of recent mudslide, they now know the location of where it might be, which is why they haven't gone back sooner. So they were in Vietnam. The film is set in the present day. And once they get there, though, getting the gold out is not as easy as it seems. And there's also all these conflicts. Uh, perhaps the, one of the more interesting ones is that one of the characters who's played by Del, Delroy Lindo, who's giving easily what's going to be one of the best performances of the year, uh, is, is a Trump supporter. And so and his and his friends can't understand that they don't they don't know why he is. And, and it's a really interesting look um at so many things as as is typical with the spike lee film there are a lot of ideas that he wants to go after uh in his movies and so this one you know one of the central ideas is how 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 do you be a black soldier in a country that doesn't want to give you the same rights as everyone else how do you fight for this country and i mean the and and spike lee goes all the way back to to crispus addicts you know and the 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 massacre uh, the Boston Massacre, and just to really hammer home 
you know, this this weird sort of notion of black people who are fighting for America, even though America constantly turns on black people, has always turned on black people and has always, you know, treated them poorly, uh, to say the least. Uh, so I think it's just a really rich, interesting film, but it is trying to do a lot. Uh, Adam, what did you think about it? Uh, I liked it quite a bit, although, I mean, on first watch, it's a lot to take in. It's kind of hard to, like, immediately, like, uh, I'm very glad that this wasn't, like, a traditional press screening, where as you're walking out, the publicist is like, so what do you think of the film? Because it's one where you got to kind of stew on it. you got to think about it. Uh, it's very confrontational from the opening moments. Um, as it opens with archival footage from the Vietnam War, very graphic, very violent. Um, you're watching like killings. You're watching. Um, it, it puts you in the mindset of these soldiers, of of kind of what they went through and the the PTSD that they may still be feeling, um, and the horrors that were perpetuated, uh, you know, upon these people. Um, and so, it, you know, and then it kind of moves into like, uh, not like what was that. Uh, like going in style or whatever, like you kind of like at the beginning get a sense like, oh, is it just going to be like a bunch of old guys reminiscing about the old times and like getting together and having fun? And then it meshes with like kind of like an adventure tale. Um, and then it just gets really dark and dramatic. Uh, you know, I think Lee is pulling from a lot of influences here. Apocalypse Now is a very clear one. Um, and it's curious to see how he threads through that. But yeah, it it's a lot. It's a lot of film, and it I don't think it all works perfectly. But the stuff that does work works really well. There's one particular stretch in the middle of the film that's as good as uh, you know any set piece that Spike Lee has ever put together uh, in terms of the tension, in terms of the character interactions that are happening there. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a hodgepodge, uh, it kind of like a Spike Lee film. But ultimately, I think it's a very very good film. Yeah, there's usually like a core idea of a Spike Lee film such as this, um, and then it can kind of branch out a little bit. So, for instance, you know, his his previous film, Black Klansman, the seed of the idea is is white supremacy in America. But from there, you know, if he wants to go on and do like a sequence about birth of a nation and, you know, the way different audiences view that film and, and its impact and the impact, impact that film has as a storytelling device, he's going to go in that direction if he wants, you know, and it's not that he's got, he's, get, he's getting so far afield that he's lost the thread, but he's clearly a, a filmmaker that doesn't, he, he sees all these things are connected and it's really the, the films, I think uh, his films can rise and fall and how well he weaves that tapestry together because he's not just pursuing one idea. He doesn't just say it's this one thing. And if we talk about this one thing, the problem is solved. So, you know, in, in Five Bloods, he's not just talking about, you know, black soldiers. He's also talking about reparations, which is what the gold stands for. And he's also talking about legacy, which is ties into where these characters are. And he's also exploring how, you know, black people are not this liberal monolith as we see with Delroy Lindo's character. And, so you're trying to individualize and humanize these characters and then also make a point about legacy. And in a weird way, I think the five bloods as dark as it can get is one of Lee's more hopeful films, because I think he's looking at the landscape and starting to see progress, at least in a way that he wasn't seeing it before in terms of like the black lives matter movement and what the younger generation of black voices are, 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 are bringing because, and the other thing to remember is that, you know, when Spike Lee, you know, first really kind of came out in the 19 in the late 1980s 
there weren't a lot of Spike Lee's. It was like Spike Lee, and then a few years later it was John Singleton, and then like and and then it was pretty you know you had like the Hughes brothers and then like of course there's the indie scene but in terms of like mainstream movies getting to America you know getting to American moviegoers he was it was kind of he was kind of a bit of an on an island and I think there was also the pressure of being on that island like congratulations Spike you now have to speak for all black people <laughs> and which it can't be fun you know no one asked Spiel, Steven Spielberg it's like now you speak for all the Jews you know if, if Steven Spielberg wants to make a movie about dinosaurs no one's going to stop him but Spike it's like what's you know what's the next racial thing you're going to talk about spike <laughs> which is why i find it kind of a relief when he does a film like inside man or 25th hour which still has like you know which doesn't forget about you know he never really forgets about race but the film is you know like inside man is just a really really good heist movie and like 25th hour is just a really really good 9-11 movie uh you know but i i like the fact that uh, Spike Lee has, I think he's grown as a filmmaker, but I also think that America has kind of caught up to what he's been saying. Yeah. And I think, you know, coming off Black Klansman, which he won his first competitive Oscar ever, he had been given an, an honorary Oscar one or two years before, um, but it never won. He won best adapted screenplay for Black Klansman, uh, which was incredible. But, and that film, you know, was his most well-received film in in quite a few years, uh, and coming off that film, he could have chosen something that was a little easier or something a bit more obvious. But I admire the fact that Defy, that Defy Bloods is ambitious and a little unwieldy. And he does want to talk about all of these things and all of these issues in a single film. Um, I also like the cast a lot. Like, it's not an obvious cast, but you look at uh, – I can't remember who was uh, – Actually, I'll look it up now because I, I think it's interesting to kind of contrast, um, you know, because when it was originally coming together, uh, yeah, they were talking about like Samuel L. Jackson, Giancarlo Esposito and Don Cheadle being in the cast. Um, and ultimately you have, uh, you know, Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., um, as kind of the older gentleman. And like these actors are not, uh, you know, like people who watch The Wire obviously love Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock, Whitlock Jr., but they're not Don Cheadle or Samuel L. Jackson level. Um, and Delroy Lindo, I mean, he's an icon, but it's not as if he's like red hot at the moment or anything. And getting these actors who are a little older, who are really terrific at their craft, and getting them together and putting them in a Spike Lee film like this, I think is really wonderful. I, you know, as much as, it, as fun as it would have been to have seen Samuel L. Jackson take on the character as Paul, of Paul, which I think would have been fascinating. Um, it's, it's wonderful to, to see people kind of rediscovering Delroy Lindo. Um, or maybe not even rediscovering is the right word, but it's nice to see, uh, you know, these kinds of actors highlighted in the film. And I think they do a tremendous job. Um, and that's one of the aspects I really liked about this is that kind of, he took his clout from black Klansman, which had Adam driver, uh, you know, who was obviously super popular. And then John David Washington, who he, who Spike had known for years because he's Denzel Washington's son. Um, take that cloud and then really kind of make something on his own terms um, and making it for Netflix, which allows him a, a significant degree of creative freedom, um, which I think is probably one of the reasons that the film is as long as it is. It's, it's over two and a half hours long. Um, I don't know. I just really admire the ambition of that. And then even given that it's not, it's not inelegant and in, in it's telling like it is long and ambitious, but it's not, it's not a mess. No, it's long because it's trying to do a lot of things, but I don't think it ever like falls apart. 
uh, with all of its ambition. And I agree, like it's a really good cast. And the thing about Spike Lee is that he's always been kind of ambitious in his own way, where he's just kind of going to, he's going to, it's not that his ambition is, you know, when we talk about ambition, we kind of think about it in kind of a Christopher Nolan sense, like, oh, he's going to make a movie about, you know, set inside the mind and he's going to cost $200 million. And like, that's ambition. But I think for Spike Lee, ambition is what are the ideas that I can really challenge my audience with and how can I keep pushing and how can I keep churning out a lot of work? I mean, you like Spike Lee has 93 directing credits to his <laughs> name and some of those are shorts and some of those are documentaries, but like he works a lot. Like, I mean, he has films that like, you're like, Oh my God, like I don't even know that film. Like the sweet blood of Jesus is a Spike Lee film that came out on Amazon or like, you know, he did a, he basically shot a stage play called Passover and so, like, he's constantly making movies and, like, really pushing his craft, but he's not doing it in such a way as someone like a Clint Eastwood or a Ridley Scott where it's like, I just have to work. <laughs> I just have to do work and filmmaking is a hobby. Like, Spike Lee, is, he's still got a lot to say. And it's, again, when you look at his filmography, you can sort of see how ahead of his of the times he was. Like, I mean, he released Bamboozled, I think, in 2000 or 2001. And, like, that film is about blackface. That film is all about blackface and being black in the entertainment industry. And it's something where, you know, if someone like Megyn Kelly had watched Bamboozle, maybe she'd still have a job right now. <laughs> but instead, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's fascinating you bring up, like, Ridley Scott. Uh, I mean, go, to go back to your earlier point, like, you, you know, he arrived on the scene in the 80s, which, you know, was like a decade after, or, like, the Spielbergs and the George Lucases. And, but you look at, so, you know, that kind of pack of filmmakers, Spielberg, Lucas, De Palma, Coppola, um, they're all white men, but they're all, you know, kind of of their own generation. But, like, Spike Lee doesn't have that. Like you said, he, he was the the black director of his generation. It wasn't like he was surrounded by other black directors um, who were also making stories and kind of went their own ways. So there was that burden put on his shoulders of, of kind of carrying that weight. And, um, and then he goes on to prove that like, you look at something like 25th hour or, uh, you know, even old boy, which is not very good, but like he can do the like he can do the thing. Like if he wanted to be really Scott, he very well could be. Like he can do those kinds of movies, and they're fine. Um, I mean, Twenty Fifth Hour is better than fine, but like Old Boy is is an example of like him taking on a, a you know uh, I guess a franchise film. I still don't necessarily know why he made that movie. To me, uh, that's almost like the John Singleton path, and you know, rest in peace, John Singleton. But like John Singleton, like made like Boys in the Hood in the Hood. But then, like, you know, by the end of his career, he was, like, making Abduction. And yeah. you're like, why are you making Abduction, John Singleton? I think he was doing some really great stuff uh, in television. Uh, That's true. Towards the end of his career. I think he, yeah, yeah I, he did quite quite a lot of stuff on television. I think, you know, a comparison, if you're talking about uh, black filmmakers, would be, like, Antoine Fuqua, who makes just a bunch of thrillers. Um, and, you know, some are better than others. Um, but, I mean, my point is that, like, Spike could have done that. But instead, he makes the sweet blood of Jesus. He makes Black Klansman. He makes the Five Bloods. In addition to showing that he can do Old Boy, um, you know, and he can do Inside Band, which I think is highly underrated a, a film of his, and it's one I want to revisit again because I haven't seen it in a while. But looking at it in the current context, because um, you know, obviously Denzel Washington and Chiwetel Ejiofor play cops in that movie. So, well, that's the thing about when I mean, when you watch Inside Man. 
you see like if another director handled Inside Man, it would look similar, but it wouldn't have like it would be a film that would probably just not talk about the race stuff. Like there's a scene where, um, you know, they pull out one of the hostages and he's a Sikh and Willem Dafoe's character is like, he's a terrorist. And like and then later they're interrogating him and he's like, you called me a terrorist. And he's like, no, no, I think you misheard me. You know, like <laughs> Willem Dafoe's like, I, I someone may have said terrorist. It wasn't me. You know, like, and so there is like a rate, you know, they're not a, you know, Spike Lee always wants to sort of keep race at least somewhere in his viewer's mind. He does, you know, like there's that scene, you know, 25th Hour is not really a film about race, but there is that scene where Edward Norton goes on that long rant where he's just, you know, being very, very racist about all these different New York, um, you know, populations until it boils down to the people that he knows interpersonally. It's a really powerful scene because he's just, you know, full, so full of anger and hate. And yet really he understands that the person that he's angriest at the most and who he hates the most is himself. And it's just so, and so Spike Lee never really loses sight of the bigger, I want to say the bigger picture, but he understands race in a way that I think you know, in the eighty, in the late eighties and the nineties and the two thousands, people were like, "Does it always have to be so racial, Spike Lee?" And now people are like, "Oh, it does always have to be racial." Like Spike Lee was on top of that, and everyone else was sort of like, "Spike, you're ruining the party." Yeah. And now it's like Spike was at the party a long, long time before you were. Well, it reminds me of that scene in in The Hate You Give, which is a film that I don't think enough people saw, and I think it's available for free right now, and I would highly mm-hmm. recommend watching it. Um, uh, but I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, the lead character, who is black, played by Amanda Stenberg, uh, someone is telling her that they don't see race. It's her white friend. And she says, if you don't see race, you don't see me. So to try and pretend like you, you, know, you don't see it and you don't see a difference is to ignore the realities of the America that we live in. And I think that's what Spike's good at. Like Inside Man isn't all about race, but it's not going to ignore the fact that Denzel Washington is a black police officer. And that kind of changes things sometimes. Um, or detective. I can't remember precisely he's a, what he's a is. detective. Yeah. Um, but I, and I think that's something that, as you said, we're now like, oh yeah, actually it does need to be about race because a lot of other film, other filmmakers were ignoring it or just kind of plug and playing characters in, um, you know, and we've seen that with gender as well. We've seen that with, you know, women speaking out about scripts they get. And it's clear that they just, you know, change the gender of the male character to a female without like making it specific. And, you know, sometimes that can be fine, but sometimes it's, it's to ignore the uh, specific or unique experience that that person has gone through that shapes yeah. their worldview. And I also, I also want to take a, a quick aside to just be like that Spike Lee is an incredibly talented documentary filmmaker as well. Yeah. I think four little girls is a remarkable documentary as is uh, when the levees broke. Um, you know, he, he doesn't, it's, it's hard to pin him down in the sense of like just one genre or just one kind of movie. And yeah, obviously race is at the forefront of his movies for the most part, but I think that he finds new and interesting ways to explore it. Just like with the five bloods, the five bloods is like his first war film, you know, but it's well, miracle at St. Anna. Oh, I forgot about the miracle at Santa Ana. Okay, sorry. First, second, uh, first Vietnam War film, but it's also yeah. I would say that Defy Bloods is not the same kind of movie as Miracle of Santa Ana. Yeah, where, it's a veteran story. 
Yeah, it's a veteran story, but also it's, it's you know, it's a film that's very much about America right now with the whole Trump aspect and how the, there's a there's a make America great, a ha- make America great again hat. That's like a cursed object in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is fascinating when the film started and it, you know, it, it that reveal happens early on. But uh, when Delroy Lindo was added as a his character is added as a Trump supporter, I was like, oh, man, where is this going to go? But it does, like, you know, Spike does the work to kind of try and investigate what this guy's worldview is and what kind of shapes how he sees the world and the decisions that he's making and why he's making those decisions and how he feels. Um, you know, speaking about Edward Norton's incredible monologue in 25th Hour, Delroy Lindo has a really incredible monologue in this film as well um, that kind of outs, you know, what he's really angry about and what really upsets him and what really hurts him. Um, yeah, and, and he's so good at that. Like, you know, even just from a craft perspective, we know like the dolly shot is always going to be in a Spike Lee film. Um, but the way it's used, I think, is is unique. Uh, I think the Black Klansman one is particularly effective. But even just the way he shoots scenes and and specifically the Delroy Lindo monologue and and this film really struck me. And mm-hmm. I was just kind the of lighting like, lighting is so good in that scene. Yeah. And yeah, you know, he's working with Newton Thomas Siegel, the cinematographer on this film who shot, uh, you know, he shot a bunch of things. He shot extraction, but he was Brian Singer's cinematographer for a long time. So he shot Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe directed some of Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, and he's a very talented cinematographer, but, and, and watching him work with Spike on this film, I think is really, um, uh, fascinating, engaging. And that's something that's interesting about Spike's career as well is, uh, I, you know, I, I can't recall correctly, but I do think he switches up, uh, you know, cinematographers uh, fairly frequently. Um, he's not one of those directors who like has his cinematographer like Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski, um, you know, match made in heaven forever and ever. Amen. Um, for better and worse. Um, some of Janusz's films for Spielberg are great, but sometimes you kind of wish Spielberg would have chosen a, a different cinematographer or something. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's something that gets lost in, you know, talking about the themes and, and race that Spike is talking about. Just the craft of his films. And even early on, like, do the right thing. One of the reasons that movie is so powerful is the way that Spike is using the camera as a weapon and yeah. forcing you to be a witness. You are forced to be a witness to what is happening in that film. Um, and even just the sense of place and the world building. Like, you feel hot watching that movie. You yeah, it's, feel an un- the- it's a purposely uncomfortable experience. Yeah, you feel the tension of the humidity and the heat and you feel things ratcheting up and it has to do with the soundscape and uh, you know the voices that you're hearing and the music that's being played and as it kind of crescendos towards that finale. And gosh, it's incredible to think that movie was released in 1989 and it feels as relevant now as it did then, um, which is super frustrating and terrible. Um, but as you said, I would very much like to live in a world where do the right thing feels antiquated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it is just so interesting how Spike has been on the pulse like that. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, he's, he's been on the pulse in a way that other filmmakers have the luxury of not being on the pulse. You know, if you're a white filmmaker, you don't really, like, no one asks you like, Oh, what are you saying about these issues? Or what are you saying about that issue? You know, like, don't you have an obligation to be this, this, and this, you know, and that's, that's a difficult position. I remember I interviewed, I remember, I interviewed Cassie Lemons for um, Talk to Me. And, you know, she talked about there's a pressure, you know, when you're a black filmmaker, like that you feel like you have to be, you have to speak for everyone, even if you just want to make your own personal vision, that you you kind of carry that responsibility so that if your film is a hit, it's great, it's uplifting for everyone. But if it's a disappointment, then you've let everyone down. And, you know, it's it, it, it's it's, an, it's, a, it's a weird level of responsibility that you have to carry 
that other filmmaker that that a, a white filmmaker doesn't. Yeah, it's an unfair and undue burden put on um, any filmmaking minority. Even you know, you think about the burden put on Patty Jenkins with Wonder Woman, and it was like right. if this doesn't work. Uh, women don't get to make superhero movies anymore. Yeah. Well, even, you know, I interviewed Paul Feig for Collider Connected, our extended interview series plug. Um, And he was talking about with Bridesmaids, as it was in development and as they were in production, there were already whispers saying that if this movie, like he was hearing that other studios were holding on to scripts about like female comedies or female driven things because they were waiting to see how Bridesmaids did. And so that put a pressure on bridesmaids to either succeed or fail. And the the future of like the all of these other projects hinged on that one movie, which is yeah. unfair. And well, it's, it's unfair. And it's also a double standard, because then at the end, then what happens is if the film is a hit, then they can just turn around and say, well, that was a that was an exception. Yeah. You know, they're going to make the movies they want to make. At the end of the day, they're going to make the movies they want to make and that they can justify to their boards and their shareholders. Um, And I think Spike Lee has done pretty well finding a way to work within the system while retaining a lot of freedom and making the films that he wants to make. He's retained a ton of freedom. It is kind of crazy, Uh, you know, especially and I haven't seen I didn't see Chirac and I haven't seen The Sweet Blood of Jesus, um, but I saw Old Boy. So I don't know, like it's Red Hook Summer isn't great either. Right. Red Hook Summers, were you not at Sundance? You were at Sundance. I I wasn't at Sundance that year. Oh, we all hated Red Hook Summer. (laughs) Red Hook Summer is very bad. Yeah. Um, It has some of the worst child actors I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Um, But like we all wanted to see it because it takes place in the same universe as as, uh, Do the Right Thing. Spike Lee reprises his character. um, But yeah, like there are times where it just, you know it doesn't work. Like she hate me. Like there are just times where what, for whatever reason, Spike, a Spike Lee film does not come together, but you know what? That does not make him unique among filmmakers. You know, Spielberg's got flops too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if we had, if we had called it quits on Spike Lee after old boy, we wouldn't have gotten black Klansman or defy bloods. Like those two films came after. But what I was saying is that stretch is, you know, inside band is a hit. And then he makes miracle at Santa, which I don't think was a huge hit. And Red Hook Summer, Old Boy, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, and Chirac, all before Black Klansmen. And then those films, varying degrees of success, both critically and commercially, but none of them were as huge or as popular or as well-received as Inside Man or 25th Hour um, or even Summer of Sam. I think I, I also still haven't seen Summer of Sam, which I need to. Well, and that's the thing. Like Spike Lee will like make a splash with something, and then he'll just kind of go off and do his own thing. So like Malcolm X was like nominated for Best Picture – um, it was, this, you know, it was this really, you know, critically acclaimed film. And then he just goes off and makes Crooklyn and Clockers and Girl Six. You know, he's yeah. just kind of going to go do his own thing. And I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I respect that as well. But yeah, like you said, like Spielberg's made some clunkers. So you can't uh, you can't just say because I think that's the thing about Spike Lee is that you never necessarily know what you're going to get. Um, and I mean, the same is true of Woody Allen. Um yeah, you know what you're gonna these days. <laughs> you know what you're gonna get. Well, the 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 reappraisal with like Midnight in Paris, where it was like, oh, like you know, I feel like that was more of like a like I, I would I would make that more similar to like a Ridley Scott film, where it's like one out of every five will be good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. he's gonna keep churning out a film a year, and one out of every five will be 
good. Yeah. That's, you know, where Spike Lee, you know, I, I would say that it's just, you, you, you truly do never know what you're going to get because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to use, he doesn't use like the success of Black Klansman to springboard into like a blockbuster tentpole, you know, yeah. like he's not angling to direct Black Panther 2 or anything like that. You know, he wants to do his own thing. And I think also, I think he'd probably be miserable in that kind of <laughs> framework if Marvel was like, hey, you want to direct Blade? And he'd be like, fuck no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would work out well. Again, I'm fa- I'm utterly fascinated by the decision to make Old Boy and what, uh, you know, what the conversations were around that. Because mm-hmm. um, it just seems like an odd, odd liar. Like Inside Man makes sense to me. And Inside Man is like Spike saying like, yeah, I can make a straight thriller and it's fantastic. Yeah, Old Boy was just, it felt kind of almost like a one for them, one for me kind of thing, where it's like Old Boy is like, all right, I like the original, let me see what I can do with it. Like, it almost felt like an experiment for him. Like, I think there's that, there is a level of experimentation in Spike Lee films, which is that, you know, here's this critically acclaimed, you know, masterpiece uh, from Park Chan-wook. What could I do with it? You know, what, what, if I took this great material, what would it look like? And it didn't really work out, but... I think at that point, Spike Lee is just self-assured enough to be like, I'm going to get to keep making movies. I know how I've worked in this business long enough that I'm going to get to keep making films. um, Even if this one doesn't work out. Well, and I interviewed his composer, composer Terrence Blanchard for the five bloods and something he said, uh, I found really interesting is that he said, they don't necessarily talk a lot about like what this movie should sound like, but they do talk frequently about what have we not done before, Mm -hmm. which feels like uh, an MO that extends to the films themselves that he's making. Like, what have I not tackled before? What kind of story have I not done before? Um, You know, what tone, what genre, what themes have I not explored before? And I think that, I think that why that makes Spike Lee um, a filmmaker that feels more immediate than contempt, not, you know, I don't want to say contemporaries, but like, I think that's given him a longevity that has escaped other filmmakers. Yeah. You know, and I think while, it's been easy to, you know, pigeonhole him as like, oh, he's just the race guy. Uh, he's shown that he has a lot of, he has a lot more uh, range, uh, but that race is important to him and that's what he cares about, but he wants to find ways to to tell, to talk about it in different frameworks. And I think he's, he's doing that with a lot of success. And I think what's interesting now is that I think the the landscape has changed so much, not so much, I don't want to oversell it, but I will say, there are more filmmakers now who are making films about race than there were when he, when Spike Lee started out in the, in the late eighties, you know, now you have, you know, Ava DuVernay and you have um, Boots Riley and you have, um, you know, uh, Ryan Coogler. And so, you know, it's, it's a lot, there's, there's more, there's more film. There's Jordan Peele, there's Nia DaCosta. It's, there's more film, black filmmakers uh, telling stories and telling stories explicitly about race. Well, in a, a diversity of tone as well, like yeah. Selma and Get Out are two incredibly different films, but they're both ostensibly about race, but like right. different issues relating to race. And they're telling the stories in different ways. Mm-hmm. That doesn't uh, mean that one is better than the other. But when you're Spike Lee and when you are the like the black filmmaker who's making the black movies, um, there's not as much diversity. But this allows for, uh, you know, diversity in, in those kinds of tones. Like, I'm super excited for Nia DaCosta's Candyman to see, like, what does that story look like from her point of view? Exactly. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I definitely think when Spike Lee, <clears throat> when he got that honorary Oscar, he absolutely had earned it. 
um, for all the work that he's done. But I'm also glad that he won. He has won now won a competitive Oscar because he should have won it back in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think he, there was, he, I got the sense that there was some competition in him that he was kind of like, really, you're going to give me an honorary Oscar. Like, are you saying that I'm done? Yeah, exactly. That it'll never happen. <laughs> and he turns around and, and makes, he's Lynch? not that old. He's what he's like in his sixties now. Uh, I think so. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. He's not, he's not, he, look, if Ridley, he's not Ridley Scott old. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. No. He's not no. in his eighties. He's 63. Yeah. yeah. So he's not very old. Um, so yeah, I, I think Spike Lee is, is a filmmaker whose work, like I keep wanting to like, they're like, I I'll fully admit they're like Spike Lee blind spots. Like I haven't seen clockers. I haven't seen Crooklyn, uh, like that I need to like fill in, but, um, and I'm not saying like they always work, but I think he's an interesting filmmaker, uh, that has proven to be one of American cinema's most vital voices. And the fact that he's still knocking it out with films that are as good as defy bloods is, is really encouraging. We also neglected to mention that he just went ahead and directed two entire seasons of She's Gotta Have It on Netflix, a TV series uh, adaptation of his movie in yeah. 2017 and 2019. So like in between everything else, he was also writing and directing uh, on a Netflix series. Yeah, he stays busy. <laughs> yeah, he does a lot of things. Um, cool. Anything else to add about uh, Spike Lee or Five Bloods? Just that if you haven't seen Defy Bloods yet, I would highly recommend checking it out. It was kind of nice. I mean, with the Oscar announcement that they're now pushing back the eligibility window to make room for anything that's been impacted by COVID. Uh, it's been kind of nice this summer. I mean, it, I miss some of the summer blockbusters, sure. But it's been like, if you, like in an alternate universe right now, we're talking about Gosh, I don't even remember. Like Wonder, Wonder Woman, Woman. 19, yeah, like Wonder Woman is out, and Black Widow is out, and stuff, and and The Five Bloods comes out on Netflix, and you know, for the people who are really into it, they go and watch it. But maybe other people are like, oh, I'm busy, I'm going to see all these blockbusters. It's been kind of nice this summer to to just be able to kind of sit back and calm down, and like you know, The Five Bloods comes out. It's like the probably the biggest release of the summer will will end up being like from in terms of. Uh, you know, prestige of the the filmmaker releasing something this summer. Um, it feels like this is it. And it's kind of nice that, you know, it's been sitting at number one on Netflix for the, the last couple of days. It, it seems nice that people are watching it and checking it out. So I don't know. It's been a nice change of pace. And it's not like we're, we're lacking for quality films this year. Yeah, you can you can stay home, not risk COVID and watch The Five Bloods. Uh, and you won't get that that bargain from Tenet. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Nolan will have you risk your life. Risk your life for the glory of cinema. <laughs> for the glory of Christopher Nolan. Glory of Tenet. Every uh, every seat comes with its own oxygen mask, like John David Washington wears. It should. <laughs> little little <laughs> Tenet branded oxygen mask. Little yeah. Nolan giving thumbs up. Yeah. So hey. in cinemas. Yeah. That's how he talks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Think that's no. How he talks. No, he doesn't talk like that. All right. All right, let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately? Um, so 
uh, based on your recommendation, actually, so this weekend, so normally uh, what we've been doing with this podcast is uh, you guys are voting on what movie you want us to talk about, and I revisit that movie over the weekend, usually. Uh, since it was Defy Bloods and I had already seen it, uh, I didn't have anything specific I had to watch this weekend. So um, I saw The Good Liar premiered on HBO, which is another fun thing, is that like HBO on every Saturday night has a new movie uh, or a new release movie, and if it's something I haven't seen, it's kind of nice to be like, oh, cool, I get to watch this now. Um, and it's The Good liar which uh came out in 2019 bill condon directed it um kind of like a small scale thriller like i didn't necessarily know what to make of it from the trailers uh and you saw it and you were kind of raving about it you said it was like really good and really fun um and it is you were not wrong uh it's ian mckellen and uh helen mirren and uh you know i i won't give away too much but the basic setup of the plot is uh it begins ian mckellen is a con man um, he meets Helen Mirren online dating, and it seems as though he's going to try and take her money. Um, and that's the basic setup of the movie, but there are a bunch of twists and turns that abound. And it's just kind of a fun two-hander uh, little thriller between uh, these two incredibly talented actors uh, who are just kind of getting center stage to just perform in, you know, like a small-scale thriller. Um, and kind of a nice change of pace. Like, it's not you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, like shooting each other up with guns. It's just two really good actors talking, which is, uh, you know, very compelling. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's not, you know, the, I don't want to oversell it. It's not going to blow your mind, but, uh, I had a really good time with it. And if you have HBO or HBO max, you can watch it right now. Yeah. It's a solid thriller. I mean, really when the, like watching it, it's Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren who are two Titans of acting. Yeah. And you're going to watch them bounce off of each other. That's worth the price of admission. Yeah. Yeah. I watched it with my uh, fiance and my mother-in-law and all of us just like really enjoyed it. So yeah, it's a good movie. You should watch it. Um, and Carson from Downton Abbey is in it. So that's yes. nice too. He plays a, a present day man, which is very mm-hmm. striking. It's very <laughs> strange. He has a modern hairstyle and everything. Oh yeah. Um, for me, so I'm, I'm doing, uh, speaking of Nolan, I'm doing a Christopher Nolan, uh, rewatch project for the site. And, uh, so I recently rewatched, uh, not rewatch, uh, I'm coming up on Insomnia, but I had never seen the 1998 Norwegian film that Insomnia is based on, also called Insomnia. So I'm like, I should probably watch this because this is the only remake in Nolan's career. And it was sort of a turning point where he was like, OK, I've done these indie films. I want to show to a studio that I can do something with a bigger budget and work with you know famous actors and, and show them that I can do this. And so he comes to Insomnia. And his Insomnia is very different <laughs> than the Norwegian version. The Norwegian version is better um because it's basically um the plot is it's still the same setup which is that there's this cop he accidentally shoots his partner and the killer that they're chasing witnesses him shoot his partner but what the norwegian film really hammers home is there is no justice in the world everything is chaos it's very bleak there are no consequences for your actions (laughs) things just happen randomly it's absurd and it's dark and that's all you can hope for. And like the fact that an American studio is like, yeah, let's make this. It's just a cop <laughs> thriller, right? It's just a cops and criminals thriller. No, it's not. <laughs> like it was, it's one of the, it's like a prime example of a studio, like missing what, what a movie is about. Uh, because they're focused on like, Oh, well this is just the plot. So when you see Nolan's film, Nolan's film is pretty just standard. It gets fine. 
I think there's a reason it's largely forgotten in his filmography. Um, but I would say the Norwegian film, which stars Stellan Skarsgård in the cop role, um, is is worth checking out. It's on Criterion Channel, uh, and it's an interesting film. It's it's definitely has a lot more going on than the American remake. How does it compare stylistically to Nolan's Insomnia? Was Nolan like cribbing from it, or does it feel like? Uh, no, it feels. I think Nolan kind of overdoes the insomnia aspect. Like he really leans into uh, the weariness of the cop. Whereas um, in the Norwegian version, it's like the sunlight is mocking him. It's like, because the sunlight is sort of like, here's the disinfectant that actually never gets anything out. Like I'm going to shine a light on all of it, but it doesn't matter because the world is a cruel and chaotic place where nothing matters aren't you glad you can see that? (laughs) Like, it's just, it's a very, like, it's, it's overly lit in a way that's meant to make it uglier. Um, And I, I kind of, it works. It works for, for that film. For Nolan, he's kind of just trying out some stylistic things that I think he has a better handle on by the time he gets to Batman Begins. Yeah. I'm excited to dig into that when we do our big Nolan podcast next yeah. month i guess maybe if, if tenant happens like that's the thing like that's why i thought i have to do this project now because if tenant comes out we got to have those articles ready so yeah sooner or sometime sooner or later we will be going all in on the filmography of christopher nolan yeah that might be a two-parter episode to be honest yeah. i mean all we right. got to devote an entire part to his episode of muppet babies so yes he did not direct an episode of Muppet I'm just going to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. We will be with you later this week as we will dive into The King of Staten Island and the films of Judd Apatow. So stay tuned for that. Stay little chico, pit bull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect start to set any holiday vibe. The Home Bar makes over 30 cocktails, brews, ciders, and more, all at the push of a button. From cosmopolitans to old fashions, each pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. Insert the pod and let the Home Bar do the work. Go to drinkworks.com to order your Home Bar and see all available drinks. Drinkworks. Press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc., used under license. Please enjoy responsibly.